So our goal is to end by three, and we're going to leave a little time for Q&A if you guys want to do that. But I would like to wrap up for the next 20 plus minutes by being a little countercultural, if you'll let me. What do I mean by this? As good Westerners, good Americans, we are oriented to success, right? We want to know how to get results. How can we have interventions so we never have to deal with this mess again? And so what do we get for our children? We get tutors and coaches. We put them into youth group. We send them on retreats so that what? So that they'll turn out well. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that focus on success means that we see times when they fail as something to eliminate rather than as something to use. And that's not the way God approaches our failures. He sees them as opportunities to invite us to experience something of him that we would not have been able to experience in any other way. Let me unpack that a little bit. You see that invitation in Genesis chapter 3. That's the chapter where Adam and Eve sin against him. They listen to the serpent. They reject God's voice. They say, we're the arbiters of who says truth. And we pick the serpent. Serpent challenges God's words in the Garden of Eden. They, Eve is deceived. Adam actively rebels against God by elevating his wife's and the serpent's voice over God's. And we're told then in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that death entered the world in that moment through this one man's sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Our representative chose something else over God. You think about that. Death came to all. Adam spiritually murdered his progeny murdered the entire human race, every last person who's made in the image of God. God's goal in creation was to create a visible representation of his invisible self, that's Romans 1. That as you look out the window and you gaze at creation, what you see are hints and glimpses of the glory of God. You see sense of his creativity, a, 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 a tiny bit of his beauty, a, a, bits of his power, his overabundant life. We look at the world around us and we get this small picture, a, a window into the greatness of God. And at the height of creation, God does what? He creates human beings. Human beings are those which best express who he is on earth, best express what he is like, the rule and the care that they are to have for the world. Adam, with the help of his wife, just ruined all of that. Everything that God put so much time and energy and effort into creating. Now you think about that. You think about what happens in your house when you've rebuilt the whole house and someone comes in and just ruins it. How would you respond to that? Anger, fury, depression. All of those make sense. None of them are what you see in God. We focus on the curses. That's what we tend to think of Genesis 3 as the consequences of Adam and Eve's action. But if that's all you see, you miss the heart of that chapter. Because there is so much more to how God responds. Let me invite you to read through Genesis chapter 3 this afternoon, tomorrow morning. And I want you to notice all of the things there that God does that he doesn't have to. Don't look just at his words. Look at his actions. And as you look at his actions, you realize that his primary response to his children, Adam and Eve, is with grace. 
And it's grace that invites these wayward children back to himself. So you notice first that while they die spiritually, they don't die physically. They had every right to expect that that was going to happen. God promised, Genesis 2.17, that on the day that you eat of this tree, you shall what? You shall surely die. That would be totally just for them just to be gone. They've just ruined everything that God worked so hard to make. Justice would mean what? Remove them once and for all from his world, and they aren't. Instead, they can hear him coming. What is that when you don't get everything you deserve? That's grace. Or the fact that God comes looking for them doesn't make them come looking for him. That's grace. He initiates. Especially given how he comes. He comes asking a question. He comes wanting to talk, wanting to have a conversation with them. And he starts the conversation by asking a question. And it is a ridiculous question. Verse 9. Where are you? Really? The God of the universe is asking where they are. They can only hear that question. Why? Because he's asking it around them. He already knows where they are. It's an unnecessary question. He doesn't need the answer to that question. The only thing that question does is what? Is let them know that he's looking for them. That question lets them know that he still wants them, that he's searching for them. What's he doing? He's asking, can we talk? Will you trust me to talk? He's using words to try to build a relationship, to rebuild a relationship. What is that? That's grace. And then he just asks open-ended questions. Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Verse 13, what is this that you have done? Why is he asking those things? He knows the answers. That means he's not asking for his sake. The answers are not going to add a bit to his understanding. Which means he's asking for theirs. He's crafted questions that, for, that are for their benefit. He's giving them the opportunity to take responsibility for what they've done. He's helping them learn how to confess. To come out into the light where he is. To stop playing hide and seek. To work with him. He's giving them another chance to come out into his world. He's reestablishing relationship with them, communicating with words that he still loves them. That's grace. There are consequences to what they've done. But if you study the first three chapters of Genesis, you realize that none of the consequences take away their primary purposes or his provision for them. <laughs> they can still eat. It's by the sweat of your brow that what? That you will eat. That's grace. He is under no obligation to feed them. He wasn't under any obligation when he created them to feed them. That was kindness. That shows his heart. After what they've done, it's way more than kind. It's grace. These rebellious creatures can continue to have a life. They can still eat and they can still work. What is that? They still have meaning. They still have purpose. He didn't take that away. And they can still multiply. They can still fill the earth with more images of God, despite the fact that those who are born will not trust the one who gives them life. And he cosigns that. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. 
He clothes them with animal skins. Those are better clothes than they provide for themselves. And he clothes them at a cost to himself because those are his animals that he put time and energy in, that he has to kill in order for them to have something to wear. He provides for them at his own expense. And he notices that there is a future problem, verse 22, that Adam could now reach out his hand and take hold of the tree of life and eat and live forever. What's the problem? He could make his current condition permanent. He could live forever in the sin-cursed condition that he's now in. And so God does what? He sends him out of the garden. And verse 24 sets an angel with a flaming sword at the entrance that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of, the li tree of life. What's God doing? Kicking them out of his house, of their home? No. He's guarding the way to the tree of life. Guarding the tree, but not removing the tree. Not eliminating it. Why? Because the time is not yet ready for them to have the tree, but that time will come. The time when another Adam would come. The second Adam. The one that God predicted would come in verse 15. God turns to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's God doing there? He's using words, talking to the serpent, but those are words that are supposed to be overheard by the children. And he's giving the children a sense of what his attitude is still toward them. He's saying effectively to them, as he curses the serpent, you chose to build an alliance against me. You made friends with the serpent. But I love you too much to let that alliance last. I'm not going to wait until the two of you get tired of each other. I'm not going to wait until you realize that he's a liar. I will break that friendship. I will put enmity between you and him because I want you back. And God promises then that the second Adam will do what the first one failed to do. Crush the life of the snake, bring an end to his evil forever, and open back the way to the tree of life. In other words, at humanity's worst moment until the cross, God shows you things about himself in the way that he approaches his children to bring them hope. Even after their failure, it's actually their failure that lets them see his heart for them. And he takes that failure as an opportunity for them to see more of what he's like. And he uses his words to bring them back. And your kids need that same kind of hope because <laughs> they're going to do things wrong. And you need to see those times as an opportunity that can actually bring you and your child closer to each other because they bring both of you closer to God. When your child does something wrong, especially the over-the-top bad kinds of things, their heart is suddenly revealed in ways that they may have been hiding from you. And since God is sovereign in his universe, we have complete confidence that he is clearly involved in that moment. What's he doing? He's exposing their heart. He has good purposes in mind. Sadly, however, I find that most of those opportunities are moments that parents don't want. Given the choice, many of us would prefer to just have good kids instead of kids who need to be rescued from the mess that they made. 
many of us want good kids without reflecting very long on the reality that the Pharisees were the epitome of good kids. Pharisees were the models of their day. They, they were the model of what it meant to be upright, to be virtuous. They tithed all that they owned. They regularly fasted. They observed all the religious activities of their day. They were the ones who were in synagogue whenever the doors were opened. They loved studying and discussing the scriptures. They gave themselves to learning and carefully carrying out every bit of God's commands that they could. Who were they? They were the, the good kids who lived down the street that you wanted your kids to play with. You wanted your kids to bring their kids home. You wanted your kids eventually to marry those kids because they were the ones who grew up to be the leaders of their community. They were the pillars of their society who were utterly bankrupt when it came to knowing God. Didn't recognize their maker standing right in front of them when Jesus was there. They said instead, that's a messenger of Satan when they saw the things that he did. They did study the scriptures, but John chapter 5, Jesus says, you study all the wrong things. The scriptures speak about me, and because you don't look for me in the scriptures, you don't see, you don't recognize who's here. They didn't value mercy or grace when they saw it. They were the older brother of the prodigal son, held themselves back while others enjoyed the kindness that God was showering on them. It was a very painful irony good-looking exterior that masked their inner wickedness. Jesus pictured the uselessness of their efforts. He said it was like you have washed the outside of the cup and you left the inside dirty. The result was that they were the equivalent of well-decorated tombs with rotting corpses inside. And I think the saddest thing of all of this is that they hid that evil from themselves. You never get an, a hint that they had any idea how far from God they really were. They believed that image that they presented to everyone else. And that image kept them insulated from seeing their own neediness and their own spiritual poverty. They were good kids whose goodness kept them from knowing God. And my fear is that many of us as parents have that as our goal for our children. We don't realize it, but we want kids to grow up to be good Pharisees. We want people who look like they have their act together, even if that doesn't go very far down. So most of the time when parents come looking for help for their children, they say something like, we want the best for our child. We want him to grow up to be successful, to have a good life. But, but we're seeing things at home that are going to mess all that up. He's fighting with everyone, won't listen to what he says, just wants to hang out with his friends and play video games. Can you help us figure out how we can get him to behave? How we can get him to do his homework, to get good grades, to clean his room, to excel in sports, to be successful, to listen to us at home and stop causing trouble? How can we apply pressure so that he'll stop embarrassing us? How, how can we get him to do what he needs to do? Is there anything in that Bible that you have about how he's going against God's plans for his life? How God's going to be upset if he just doesn't stop? In other words, what are parents asking? We're, we're most interested in saying, how can we control our child's behavior <laughs> so that he or she will do the things that we think they should be doing? 
there are almost no parents, and I have to say almost because there are some, there are almost no parents who come saying, the greatest thing that our daughter could ever do is drink deeply of the grace that God offers to her, but she doesn't have a taste for it. She seems so well put together. She seems so set on doing what she feels like that she doesn't need God, doesn't want him. Can you help us understand how we might help her to know the grace of God, to experience that? How, how can we use, be used by God to help her taste something so wonderful and so deep that she'll be drawn to it, that, that she'll actually want more of it, more, want more of God? How can we help her realize she's making decisions that are going to lead her to throwing away the best thing that she could ever have, the best relationship she could ever have with the one who made her? How can we help her experience deep love and point her in a direction to fill up that inner emptiness with something real? When your child fails, it is a God-ordained opening for you to enter in and help him or her see a far better future than what they've imagined for themselves. It's a healthy wake-up call. It's a precious opportunity because it's shattered that image that they've tried to project. And in that sense, it's an opportunity you can't afford to wait, waste because for just one brief moment, they can't rely on those things that they've used to prop themselves up with. It's a moment where you can help him or her learn to build a life on knowing God. It's a moment that you need to look for, not be surprised by. My working assumption is that my kids are going to have problems. <laughs> They've got my DNA. If the goal of parenting is to produce morally upright people, mine were doomed from the start. That's just never going to happen. The question is not whether they're going to create broken pieces of their lives. The question is whether I get to know about what they've done and how I get to know. And so one of my parenting goals has been to stick close enough to help pick up the pieces that I know they're going to make. But that means then that they have to be willing to bring me the broken pieces, which means they have to think that that's actually a good idea. They have to have already had some experience of grace that makes them think this is worth doing. Which means what? I need to invite them. You need to invite them into those moments. How do you do that? Last story. My middle son made a lot of pieces one night. Playing center field in a baseball tournament. And this line drive threatened to just split the outfield. I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> we're just going to watch Tim's back as he goes sprinting after that ball. And instead, I watched in amazement as this little person coiled himself down into the ground and launched himself way up high in the air, higher than I thought he could go, and unbelievably snagged the ball before falling back down. Parents went wild. The ump signaled out. The inning was over. Boys ran off the field. And the other team challenged the call. Because Tim had sort of moved funny as he gathered himself up from the ground. And the other team's saying, no, he dropped the ball. Instead of backing his initial call, the ump dumped his responsibility onto a 10-year-old. Set up behind the plate, he's a long way from deep center, hadn't seen the play clearly. So he walks over to my Tim and he says, did you catch it? Tim is surrounded by three coaches, 10 teammates, close game. Tim says, yes. I'm not sure. I'm a lot closer to the outfield. 
it really did look like he scrambled to stuff something into his glove. After the game ended, I walked with him back to the van. I praised all of his good plays, especially that play. I mean, even if he dropped the ball, it was amazing that he knocked it out of the air. Bending down, I got eye level with him. I said, tell me something. Game's over. Did you really catch that ball? Or did it roll out? No, I really caught it. I thought, uh... I said, okay. But listen to me. I just want you to know that if you ever do anything wrong, like lie about catching a ball when you didn't, you can come to me and talk to me about it, okay? Okay, he says. I thought, all right, that's, that's the end of that. We got home. He and his sister followed me all around the house. I water the garden, walk through the place, log onto my computer. Finally, sister goes off to do something. I settle into my office, and Tim walks in. He says, Dad... Remember you said I could tell you anything? Yeah, I said. And with tears in his eyes, he tells me how his glove slipped off his hand when he caught the ball before he hit the ground. It was, it was hit that hard. He talked about how pandemonium broke out around him, how everyone on his team was telling him that was a really great catch. The other team is shouting it wasn't. The ump's asking him questions, and his coach is saying, you don't have to answer him. And all he wanted in that moment is for people to think that he did good, that he made a great catch. So under all of that pressure, internal, external, he told them what they wanted to hear, even though he didn't believe it. And immediately, you all know what this is like, immediately he hated himself for doing it. Felt that heavy weight that comes from lying. Felt like his team didn't deserve to win. He was secretly hoping they wouldn't. And I just listened. More proud of him then than I had been when he laid out for the ball. He wasn't owning up to something wrong because he got caught. It's the opposite. He got away with it. But he wasn't okay with it. And so far from being hardened, in that moment his conscience is actually working the way God designed it. And here he is, really courageously, letting me see the real Tim. You realize that took at least as much courage as it would have to have owned the truth in front of his team. But it also took an invitation that he thought was worth the risk. He told me, if you hadn't told me that I could come to you, I wouldn't have. But I thought about what you said all the way home. I couldn't wait to talk to you. He thanked me for inviting him. He shared his relief that I wasn't angry with him. And I said, how can I be? And I confessed to him something that I had done recently where I had embellished a story so that people would laugh at it, a story that I was telling. And I told him how I had realized that in that moment, their laughter was more important to me than how God enjoyed hearing the story. Talked about how I had gotten away with it. How I hated myself afterward. I, how Tim and I are not all that different. And so it was a moment where we could pray together. Asking Jesus to forgive him, but also celebrating God's work. To open up the dark corners of his life that he could have kept secret. If your children 
are going to know and experience the grace of God. It means they're first going to have to do something that needs the grace of God. To know and experience the grace of God means that your children are going to get in trouble. Otherwise, how could they know the depths of God's kindness? You are their first experience of what his kindness and grace looks like, what it feels like. Don't live for them to be perfect. Live instead for them to experience perfect love through their imperfections. And as you give them a taste of what that kind of love is like, through what you say to them, through how you say it, it'll signal to them, that's what I could expect from God too. So instead of shrinking back in shock when they mess up, move toward them, embrace that moment. Use your words to embrace them like God has used his words to embrace you. Let me pray for us, if you would. Lord Jesus, you have been unimaginably gracious to us. Lord, we have life that we don't deserve. We have children that we really don't deserve. And you have never quit on us like we deserve. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you have an incredible future planned out for us. Thank you for these small moments of life that help us catch glimpses of it. We pray, Lord, that we would drink more deeply of your love, that we would know that love, that I would know that love, and that we would speak and live out of that so the people around us get a little bit better acquainted with it. In Jesus' name, amen. As long as people want. I have a question. Like you said that there would be all those coaches and everybody else, they put those, that pressure on your little one to basically decide the game. Yeah. It's enormous pressure. Like, like you said, he had to decide do I do right and do lose? Everybody hates me or do I lie? So I feel like the, sometimes that's me. Mm. It's a great question. I am currently discovering that as I make mistakes. So our kids are much older, obviously. Uh, and we've worked very hard to help them transition from where we do everything for them to being in those teenage years more of mentor coach. And so I think that went well enough that we still get questions. And I'm not good at recognizing when I'm being asked a question when I'm being, when information is being shared with me. Uh, and so I find myself answering questions that are not being asked. I think the first step is to recognize, oops, I did it again. Okay, Lord, please forgive me. Go back to my child. I, you were just trying to share your life, and I missed that. Please forgive me. 
Secondly, okay, Lord, apparently you're helping me grow. You're making me aware of something that's been true of me for 50, 60 years. And so you've decided, no, it ends now, which is good. I'm grateful that we won't take this into eternity. Will you please, Lord, help me see it a little bit more? And just pausing before I share. I think the other things that I can see, uh, how do I know I've crossed that line? When it means all the world to me to be right when it's no longer about what's good for my child, but it's about me answering every objection until I'm satisfied. It's missing that I'm talking more and they're talking less. So all of those kinds of things I'm trying more to pay attention to right now. I think it's great that you're that far ahead. So at the risk of, 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 of disagreeing with you, um, we always talk to our kids. We lived with uh, a family. We lived in their basement. We were the caretakers. Um, she was a social worker. He was a social work dean. And they came to us. I don't know. We lived there maybe five years. I remember Laurie coming and saying something like, uh, third, fourth year, she said, you talk to your kids like you expect them to understand you. And they do. And she was very surprised. <laughs> and so in some sense, our expectation has always been they need the theology. Uh, you, you go to Deuteronomy 31. This, this amazes me. I learned this most fairly recently. You go to Deuteronomy 31, and Moses says to the people, Every seven years come together and everyone needs to hear the whole book of Deuteronomy read to them. Men, women, and little ones. And the word there for little one is not the word for children. It's ones who walk with little mincing steps, those who cannot endure a large march. And so you bring your men, your women, and your toddlers to hear the book of Deuteronomy read to them. And you think, what? And, and, if, and just in case you missed that, you're also supposed to bring the sojourner and their children as well. And God is saying your children have to be submerged in a world that shapes for them how God thinks about it. And so I don't think there's ever an age when you don't want to do that. But you do have to have them at their level. So little kids can understand that was bad. You have to be good. You can't be good by yourself. Let's pray. In other words, you have to translate your theology down to the level of your child, but you don't dumb down your theology just because the language isn't quite there yet. 
Does that mean that they have all of the cognitive abilities that a teenager has? No. That an adult has? No. Are they in their late 20s and, and their brain is now fully... No. But you don't... You don't hold back the word of God. I think that's what Deuteronomy 31 is saying. Scripture and scriptural ways of understanding the world are not an adult thing. They're an everyone thing. I used to teach counseling, and, and I, I, I would say to uh, future would-be counselors, you're, you're not ready to counsel until you can translate your theology to the, a three-year-old level. Why? Because you and I get away with words, <laughs> and we think we know what we mean when we say redemption. But when you force yourself to translate that at a three-year-old level, even if you're talking to someone who's 33, you now understand that in a way that you didn't before. I think that's an essential skill. So it'd be the same advice that I think of when I think about how do you address sort of the neon light sins, you know, pornography and, and sexual addiction, all those things. Figure out what the core of that is and then practice that 24-7 so that when those extreme moments of temptation hit, they're not, you, you already have a foundation of this is how I've been dealing with this all along. So the expedient moments are those that bring a lot of pressure but you want to have been practicing something so that what comes out in that moment is it's just what I've been doing from before. In other words, again, take the long haul view of parenting. And as you practice the little things, as you practice encouraging this afternoon, that then teaches you, oh, I'm really not good at this, or, oh, I actually, I am. And as I think about it a little, and that becomes a lifestyle and a pattern that in those moments comes out. If you wait for those moments, I think you'll most all of the time have an opportunity to repent. So good questions. Yeah. That's good. Thank you. 
so the way that I would approach that pictorially in my mind is that justice in that sense also fits under the umbrella of grace. Because consequences are what? They, they're, Hebrews will talk about them as discipline, not punishment. So I'm not trying to get you to pay. I'm trying to help you course correct. I'm trying to help you move in a direction. So if I've given you too much freedom, then I'm going to pull back on that freedom because you're not yet ready to handle that. Or if you have taken the freedoms that I've given you and you've abused that with your words and rebellion and arrogance, then there's going to have to be something that says, no, that's not okay. But that's in the context of grace. It's because I love you that I'm willing to do that. If I didn't love you, I don't care how you turn out. And I can save myself a lot of time and trouble. Yeah, and there you, you have to step in. And I would argue again, that in, in that kind of case, you're, you're preventing harm on two levels. You're preventing harm to the person being bullied, but you're also preventing harm for the bully. Because you're saying to the bully, this is not an okay way to live. <laughs> you're, if, you, if I allow you to think that power is the way to move yourself through life, I'm setting you up to fail in some horrible ways. And I just, I, I love you too much to, to let you get away with that. Are we recording now? Yeah. Could we?
sometimes it's hard to just have that self-control. And, um, and I don't know, maybe it's hard to have that self-control and how do you, is it okay to maybe just like step out of the room, um, be silent and not try to be an uncomfortable silence person? You know? Yeah, I... I do think it's okay to step out of the room. I think we talked, unfortunately, you were out at soccer. We, we talked a little bit about this. I think it's appropriate. Um, you need to be able to communicate that, I think, in a way that, that is not threatening, but that also says, I, I want what's best for you, and so I'm just going to be quiet for a moment, <laughs> and I will come back. You know, I, I, whether it's later today, tomorrow, there's something here that's important, but I know that I'm not in a place that I'm going to be helpful. And I think, what are you doing there? You're, you're, you're actually teaching in that moment. You're teaching your child, here's how to handle life when it's overwhelming. You don't have to react. You have the, the freedom. In that sense, you're empowering your child to say, I need to take a step back. Now, if your child is always taking a step back, then you have to come back and say, no, you need to come forward after you step back. But... It's really okay to do that. You don't have to have something quick and fast. I think there's wisdom to that. It doesn't work in our society. Okay. It, it, it's hard to feel it, say that though in the moment, right? Because then you feel like, oh, I'm not, I'm not being responsible. I'm not taking charge. And, and you think, no, I have freedom here. Yeah. So in that situation, we talked a little bit about this during break. You have to combine both words and actions. If all that your kids see are the actions, they don't have the interpretive framework for that. It, think theologically here. There's special revelation and general revelation. General revelation shows you what God did. Special revelation then enters in and explains how that then connects to him and also how he's going to step into the world and redeem and rescue. And God says, here's both. And I think we want to have that same kind of thing in our own life, where here's the action, here's the explanation. And it's really okay to say to your child, I'm going to step away, but I'm not forgetting what's going on. I just don't know what to do with it right now. I think if you just pull away, then yes, you'll communicate, you know, do whatever you want. It's well said.
down, I'll kneel down. No, he would stand up and come to me. If I leave, he follows me. <laughs> so what would you advise to mother like this? I am end of my you know, nerves and I don't know what to do. What would you advise? Six years old? Uh, he's not doing this anymore. Okay. Uh, he was okay. <laughs> I think there's a number of things that I would say. Number one, I, th I think we often look for a one-size-fits-all discipline. My three children, that would not work. And I unfortunately learned that through experience, that there are different things that communicate discipline in different ways. And I think there's part of it just like, okay, who are you and how do I help you? I don't know what I would do with a child like that. What, what would I try? I, I would maybe try not in the moment, but I would try to say there are times where people need a few minutes to think and you want to keep coming close you you want to know that you're loved you you're afraid I'm leaving you you're afraid I'm punishing you and just try to I will suggest a number of things and see if any of those make any sense when I've had those conversations the first time third time eighth time they don't make a lot of sense to my kids but having the conversation over and over and over starts to have some impact. Because I'm saying, we're really going to talk about this. <laughs> this is important. This is a life skill. You can't follow people around when you're unhappy with them, when they're unhappy with you. That's not going to, that, that won't work well, especially with a wife. But I want to be able to have that conversation out of the moment because the moment has just got too much going on in it. So, you know, I, I'm afraid of being abandoned. Okay, tell you what, you can look at me through the window and we'll start there and you'll see I'm not leaving. I will come back. Here's a timer. I'm going to go out for 90 seconds. When the timer's off, I'll come back. It, it, those kind of, I need you to learn to trust me that I will not hurt you. This is actually helpful. And let's pray that that God will be the one who comforts you in this moment and you don't need to be so close to me. That's what I would start with, but I don't know your son, I don't know you, I'd, but that's where I would start. Yeah.
Yeah. To your question, just a moment, follow up on that. One of the things that I think that God does that's so kind is he puts us in long-term relationships with each other. So we can have this conversation, and we can, and we can, ha and we can have this conversation. And if it's really an issue, it'll come back, <laughs> and we can have that conversation. And it's over time, I think, that you can see things move as people navigate those. But that's where I don't feel a great deal of pressure in the moment to solve things. Because I don't think people are actually paying attention, are able to pay attention in the moment. Anger. Yeah, the, the anger or the fear or the this is not right or whatever that is that's got you all jacked up. I, we do a lot of work in our family after. My wife and I last night, I drove up here and we had a conversation um, she, when she got off work, I said, yeah, there's this thing for us <laughs> the last several days. Can we talk about this? Because this is not okay. And it's outside the moment that you have some shot at objectivity that lets you then go, oh, okay, that's this, that's, oh, okay. Here, and now we can, here's maybe a pat, let's try this. And if that doesn't work, it'll come back around again. We can try again. Yep, oh, sorry.
So what do I mean by that? I mean that every that, that discipline is something you don't have an option not to engage in. That was really convoluted. You have to discipline. But not everything has the same impact on each different child. We have one child, you could have spanked black and blue, and it would not have made a difference. But other things did. And so I think it's that sense of what is it actually that counts as a consequence that breaks through into this person's life that says, no, this is really not okay and it has to stop. The other thing that I would say with discipline is discipline has a variety of, it's a continuum. So if I say, if, if I interrupt one of my children and say, what are you doing? That's a discipline. I am breaking into their world and I'm saying, you can't just keep on going in the direction you were without my intervention. If they refuse to stop, then I have to raise that up a little bit. No, you're not allowed to do that. And now here's a little bit of instruction. So the first one is that, you know, let me see if you'll be involved in this process. No? Okay, now I'm saying no. If you continue to push the boundaries, then I'm going to have to continue doing something until you recognize the peace and goodness of the home I'm trying to build here. couple of things. There's a difference between being appropriately sad for being unappreciated, unnoticed, unrecognized, unthanked. It's not okay to serve someone and not have any awareness of that or recognition. It's a different thing if that devolves into self-pity, into bitterness, into relational disconnect. And so I think the, the first thing I would say is there's a place to grieve it but not live for it. If, if that distinction makes some sense, there, there's a place where you say, I, I, I often think about open hands, closed hands. 
So I would like my kids to notice that I love them. When I make that what I live for, now I've crossed a line. So as long as I'm in that place of, yeah, I'd like to be appreciated, that's a reasonable desire. When I make the future of our relationship contingent on whether or not you appreciate me, now I've closed my hands, I've made that an idol, if that language helps. That would be one. Second one, Hebrews 6.10, really, really helpful for me. God is not unjust. He will not forget the love you have shown him as you have loved and served his people. I might not ever get thanked on this planet for the things I do. God notices. And if I say, well, yeah, but I need my kids to notice, then I've just said they're actually more important to me than my God is. I have a different God. Now I need to repent. Yeah, and I think what you're, you're giving good words to is that there is a shift, I think, in our culture. We've, we've, we've lost the, um, the values that I think are... You used to see in society reflected the values that are in our faith. As our world becomes a little clearer in its non-Christian lifestyle, I think it's a, it, 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 our kids are exposed to that. And there's no way for that not to have an impact. That goes back, I think, again to Deuteronomy 6, where God says, here's a new nation, here's a new opportunity. Help them understand that. And I was very careful with our people on Sunday to say, you can't make them love that. <laughs> you can't make them embrace God's words and think that that's a wonderful thing you can make them aware. And then you leave it up to them. That would be our very active child. Um, and so you cannot leave this house and go play with your friends and treat them better than you treat the people in this house. This is where you learn relationships first. That's where you get to express them. But what you are expressing is what you do here. So if that's not the way you're going to live here, we're going to put a boundary and say, then you're not ready yet to go out into the larger world. That was big. That's taking... See, that, that, that's the... That's the, that's the challenge, the creativity, the art, I hate that word, of parenting because you're trying to say, how do I take this and help this make sense to you in the things that you resonate with? Uh, that takes forever. We had one child, uh, could not, wrong word, would not keep their room clean. So it didn't matter how many hours you told them you have to clean up your room. It didn't matter how many hours you spent working with them to clean up their room. It was always a pigsty. And so we said, we are so sorry. Here's Genesis 1. God takes chaos and he brings order. 
turns around to Adam, says, now name the animals. You take the chaos. You make order. You're an image of God. You're supposed to rule over chaos. At this moment, chaos is ruling over you, which means we've been foolish. We gave you too many things to take charge of. So anything that's on your floor is now going to go into dad's bag. And dad will have this bag of your things. And you can get one thing out if your room is clean, if there's not something on your floor. And we did this in stages. So no clothes on the floor. All the clothes go into my bag. I'm sorry it's cold. Yes, wear two sweaters to school. You, you, I'm not punishing you. It was so much work. But that wasn't enough. This, this person has a little bit of my stubbornness. Um, so, okay. We did clothes, we did toys, we did books. And that person now takes care of their house just fine. But it's that, how do I enter into what matters to you and help you take that next step? And do it without bitterness and without, ha, 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 I'm bringing my bag. No, <laughs> this is for your good. I hate that I have to do this. Daddy, did you take my coat? I did. I'm sorry. Can I have my coat back? Was your room clean today? Yeah, you can have your coat back. I don't want your coat. I don't need your coat. It's not for me. 